story is told of a particular Sunday morning, and the pastor was preaching his sermon, and they were having a terrible time with the microphone. And the sound man was doing everything in his power to make it right, and finally, out of desperation, he comes up and he interrupts the pastor, and he takes his microphone and does whatever sound men do to microphones. And everything was all right. The pastor continued and finished his sermon. Later on, somebody asked him, well, what in the world did you do to make the, term, uh, to make the microphone so great? And he says, ah, he said, there was a screw loose in the pulpit. Well, I hope that uh, today there's not a screw loose. You don't consider a screw loose in the pulpit. But I want to share with you a deep burden and concern of my heart this morning. It's not only for you, but it's also for me. And that burden is that the Bible, God's Word, remains at the core of our faith and our practice. That it is always our objective point of reference, our playbook, that guides our lives regardless of the pressure to do otherwise. And in our continuing series in the Psalms called God's Playlist, I have chosen Psalm 119 for our study this morning. But before we look into that particular psalm, bow with me, would you please, for just a brief prayer. Thank you, Father for the opportunity again to share your word. It's an awesome responsibility. And you know my heart, Lord, that without you we can do nothing. But your word is powerful, and as it goes forth, Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts and we'll be receptive, and your word will have a transforming effect upon each of our lives. As I call upon you in the name of Jesus, and for his sake, amen. We live in a culture today that is by and large guided by a philosophy called moral relativism. It's a philosophy that says that no action and no behavior can be termed bad or good. It's a philosophy that says there is no objective moral standard of behavior. Actions are good and bad only as they apply to you. In other words, there are no boundaries. The only boundaries that you have are what you set as an individual. And so you hear such catchphrases as follow your heart, Live and let live, and if, if it feels good, do it as long as you don't hurt somebody else. It kind of reminds me of the nation of Israel back in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, where it says, Everyone did, rep, did that which is right in his own eyes. The message puts it this way, people did whatever they felt like doing. And you know how that ended up. But I'd like for you to follow along with me as I read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 176, followed by a verse-by-verse exposition of the psalm. (laughs) 
I heard some of you say, say what? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I want to go home sometime today, too. But when we look at Psalm 119, it's a repetitive meditation on the beauty of God's Word and how it helps us stay pure and grow in faith. And almost every verse of the 176 verses mentions God's Word. And it drives home the point that the Bible is our only sure guide for living. It's only sure guide. And I want to center our focus this morning on Psalm 119, verse 11, the first part of it. It's going to be the base of our message. And Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word I treasured in my heart. The New International Version translates it, I have hidden your word in my heart. The contemporary English version says, I treasure your word above all else. Now when you identify with the psalmist here in what he has said, his statement, you will likely face little opposition in our culture. But when you proclaim it as the truth, and not just as a truth, you can expect intense opposition often resulting in name-calling such as bigot and intolerant and judgment and narrow-minded. And I want you to note the two, to know two words in what the psalmist said here in this verse, the word treasure and the word heart. The word treasured means that it was his most valuable thing in his possession. It constituted the secret power by which he was governed in life. And then he also uses the word heart. And the heart is just like the chief organ. It's the chief organ in your physical life. Without your heart, believe me, you're in deep trouble. Because it's kind of the center of our whole physical being, isn't it? And so symbolically, when the Bible talks about the heart, it talks about the figuratively as the very center of our inward life influencing our every action. It's at the ever center of our being. And that's what God's Word is. And I noticed something here that I've never thought about before. The psalmist said, I treasured God's Word in my heart. Notice he didn't use the word head. Because if he had used the word head... We could be great theologians and lousy people because we don't do it in everyday life. We're not doers of the Word. We've got a lot of knowledge, but we don't have any wisdom on how to put that knowledge into work. And so there was a reason why he said, in the heart. We're starting football season. Yay. <laughs> and I used to play football. Uh, I think they had electricity then, but I'm not sure. <laughs> but we had a playbook. But it was pretty simple, you know. It's, it had numbers and all that. But you had to memorize that playbook. And I happened to play in the backfield, and I was, those days you played every, you know, every which way. But today in the professional teams, they have playbooks that cover several pages. 
And, can, and boy, it's up to each individual, whether you're a guard or a quarterback or a wingback or whatever you might be, you better know that playbook or you're not going to be a football player for very long. Can you imagine if the quarterback takes it from the center and he drops back and one guard says, well, I'm going to think I'm going to block this way and another guard says, I think I'll block this way and one guard says, I don't think I'm going to block this time. Guess what's going to happen? Why, that uh, poor, poor quarterback's in deep, deep trouble. Every person on that 11-man team must know his position and know the playbook and everybody must be on the same page if they're going to be winners. That's the way it is with God's Word. It's our playbook. But I'd like to ask three questions. What happens when God's Word is treasured in our heart above all else? What happens when it is the joy of our hearts, when we consider it our greatest wealth? What happens when we run in its path? Well, there are many answers to that question in the 176 verses of Psalm 119. I encourage you to read that chapter sometime this week. I'll guarantee you, you'll benefit from it. But of the many answers that could be given, I've chosen three as byproducts of a heart that treasures God's Word above all else. First of all, when God's Word is a treasure in our hearts above all else, it becomes a firewall against the virus of sin. It becomes a firewall against the virus of sin. Notice verse 11 again. It says, I treasure your word above all else. It keeps me from sinning against you. Notice the nature of the firewall. It is God's word. It's not what man says. It's not what the culture mores are. It's not what your feelings are. It's what God's word says. That's the nature of the firewall. God's Word is the point of reference. Otherwise, how do you know what sin is and what sin isn't? It's the nature of the firewall. And also notice in that verse the primacy of the firewall. It has to be treasured above all else if it's going to keep you from sin. It is absolutely the number one thing in your heart. And you love it. And it's your passion. And you put it in your heart so that it might guide you in everyday life and keep you from sin. My father, former father-in-law said it well in a book that he gave to me, and he wrote in the inside cover, and he said, Ron, make the Word your life, your bread, your breath. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But also notice the potency of the firewall. It says it keeps me from sinning against you. Some years back, a man came into my office. I, it was in the neighborhood of early 50s. He happened to be Jewish in his nationality. Very smart man. He was a scientist, also a medical doctor. 
And he sat down. He said, I wonder if I could talk to you for a few moments. And he said, I've fallen in love with this Malaysian girl. I travel a lot. He said, I met this Malaysian girl. And he said, I've fallen in love with her. And he said, I know that she loves me as well with all of her heart. And he said, I began talking about marriage. And he said, my fiance, my girlfriend by the name of Angeline, she said, I'm sorry, Stephen, I can't marry you. She says, because I'm a Christian. And the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together. And I'm really sorry. I love you with all my heart. But God forbids me to marry you. So since this lady was a part of the Evangelical Free Church in Malaysia, when he came and returned home and he lived in the Playa del Rey area, and that's why he came to see me since I was a pastor of a free church. And he says, I don't understand what she said. He said, it seemed to me that since we love one another, love should cover all. I don't understand this thing, be not unequally yoked together. So we sat down and talked, and boy, he loved to debate, and we met several times. And all of a sudden, one time, as we were meeting together, he begins weeping. And he was very embarrassed, and he says, I don't know what's happening to me. He said, I haven't cried since I was a little kid when, people, when, when my, uh, some other kids threw stones at me because I was Jewish. He said, I haven't cried since then. He says, Pastor, he says, what's happening to me? And I said, the Holy Spirit is grabbing a hold of your heart. Don't you think, Stephen, it's about time you invited Jesus into your life? And he said, yes. And so I led him as he prayed to prayer, and he invited Christ to come into his life. And oh man, his countenance, he continued weeping, and his countenance had just changed. He called his girlfriend back in Malaysia. And about six months later, he had told his girlfriend, he went back there, and she says, you know, I love you, but let's grow together in the Word before we get married. And they did. And suddenly, about six months later, I got a call, and they asked me whether I would unite them in marriage and officiate their wedding, and I did. And he became alive in the things of the Lord. But the point of the whole illustration in the story is simply this. She says, I can't be united with you. Because it can't be unequally yoked together, you see. It becomes a firewall against the virus of sin. And she knew that she couldn't do that, even so she loves Stephen with all her heart. Love does not cover all. It does not cover all. God's Word covers all. But when we, when, when we uh, make God's Word and treasure it above all else in our heart, it not only becomes a firewall against the virus of sin, but secondly, it becomes a flashlight to keep us from stumbling. And I call your attention to verse 105 of Psalm 119. It says, Your words are a flashlight to light the path ahead of me and keep me from stumbling. King James says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light light unto my path alway. This flashlight that God has given us, my friends, it's a flashlight that never dims. It's a flashlight that David used. It's a flashlight that Jesus used. It's a flashlight that Paul used. And it's a flashlight that's given to us today and it still shines brightly. 
that God's Word never dims. But also notice also it's a flashlight that illumines the rocks in our path that cause us to stumble. How in the world do you know what the rocks are in your path? Well, because the Word of God lights the path up so you can avoid those rocks and not stumble over them. You know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because they hated him and they were jealous. He was sold into Egypt. And eventually he became, you know, uh, really high up in the government. But one of the problems is Potiphar, his boss, his wife, had eyes for Joseph. He was very handsome. And she wanted him to go to bed with him. And he said, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. In Genesis 39, verse 9, he says, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And he leaves the room, but she hangs on to his coat. And she tells a lie to her husband, and Joseph is thrown into prison. And he's later on delivered. You can read this story for yourself. But you see, Joseph knew full well He had the Word of God in his heart, and he followed God's Word. And he knew that when that temptation came, that rock came in his path, he knew to flee it. Because how can I sin against God? But thirdly, from that particular verse, we find that it's also a GPS to navigate around the elephants in our path. And believe me, every one of us has elephants in our path. These challenges that we face in our life that we wonder, what should we do? The guide to living the Christian life in the unfriendly confines of a hostile nature is none other than God's Word. You know the story about David and Goliath. David, this young boy running towards this giant who's over nine feet tall. You wonder how in the world could he do that? But you see, David said, as he approached that giant, and the giant laughed at him. In 1 Samuel 17, 45, he says, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. It was his GPS, and he knew that even though, see, this giant was in his path, he knew that God would navigate around that giant and give that giant into his hands. Oh, my friends, treasure God's Word in your heart above all else because it is a flashlight that keeps you from stumbling. And thirdly, I call your attention to verse 45 of Psalm 119. Well, here we discover that when you treasure God's Word above all else in your heart, it becomes a pass key to a liberated life. Verse 45 says, As the sun sets you free, you are free through and through. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. See, the Bible identifies the source of our freedom. And that source of our freedom, according to John 8.36, it says that the Son sets you free. You are free through and through. You are free through and through. 
It points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. I love that word free. It's one of the great words in my vocabulary. I love living in the United States because I'm free. But more than that, my friends, I'm telling you, I'm free. I'm, I'm so grateful I'm free spiritually. And I love the song we sing that's entitled, I'm Free. And part of the words of that song says, I'm free from the fear of tomorrow. Free from the guilt of the past. Free from that dull, empty life. I'm set free. For when I met Jesus, He made me complete. I'm free. Praise the Lord. Free at last. Oh, Jesus has set me free. That's one of the greatest truths in my life. I'm free. Thank God, because of Jesus, I'm free. But notice it not only identifies the source of the freedom, but it also identifies the path to the freedom. In John 8, 31-32, Jesus said, If you stick with this, living out what I tell you, you are my disciples for sure. Then you will experience yourselves the truth, and the truth will free you. I told this story oh, several months ago to our men's group here at Nova, and I might have told it in my small group. I don't remember. If you talk to my small group, sometimes I repeat stories. But anyhow, here goes. I was pastoring in Ohio an Evangelical Free Church in Ohio. And I was in my office studying for Sunday, and suddenly my secretary comes up to my office, and she sits down in a chair, and she says, I have a story to tell you, Pastor. She says, last night my 18-year-old nephew was arrested for murder, and he's in a local jail here for now, and, and I wonder if you would go and visit him. And I said, I'd be happy to go and visit him, but under one condition that you gather a whole bunch of people around you and pray while I'm visiting him. And so I went to the local jail, and I went up to the office up there where the cops were, and I told them my intention that I'd like to visit Mike. His name is Mike Hall. I'd like to visit him. And so they said, well... They had to check me all out. They took my belt, and you know how it is. And uh, they allowed me to keep my little Gideon New Testament that I'd brought along. And so they put me in this little room. And when I say little, I mean little. It had no windows. It's behind the uh, place where the uh, police were. And uh, this little room uh, had two chairs in it. And if two people sat facing one another, their knees almost touched had a little tiny table there with a phone. And so they put me in this little office, and I sat down, and they closed the door behind me, and I waited a considerable time. And finally the door opened, and they shoved in this young man into the room and closed the door behind me. And I looked up, and all this young man had on was bib overalls, but he had a long beard that was matted, and he had hair, long hair that was matted, But what I really noticed was his eyes. He had steely eyes. And I don't know if you remember what Charles Manson looked like, these eyes, you know, that were just fierce. Well, that's the way he looked like. And he did not move. He did not blink. He stood absolutely rigid. 
And when I say stood for rigid, I mean for the long, long time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I thought, Lord, what am I going to do? And I finally identified myself, told him why I was there, that his aunt had sent me, and I was his aunt's pastor. And I couldn't help him uh, legally. I was not there to judge him. But I was concerned for his soul, and I was there to let him know that God loved him. Still no movement, no recognition that I was there. So I opened a little Gideon Bible, and I began reading, and I believe it was from the Gospel of John. And I continued reading and continued reading. And I don't know how long I read, but it was a very long time. I was in that little room for three hours. And for the most part of that time, Mike was in that room, rigid. And nothing happened, and I just continued reading the Word, reading the Word. And all of a sudden, I noticed a little bit of movement in Mike. And all of a sudden, I looked up, and he had a tear running down his eye. And he sat down in the chair facing me. And I again identified myself and told him why I was there. I was not there to judge him, but I was concerned for his soul. And I wanted him to know that God loved him and that Jesus died for him. And I again, I presented the gospel message to him. And I said, Mike, I said, would you like to invite Jesus Christ to come into your life? He'll wash all your sins away. He'll make you a new person inside. All things will be passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And he said, yes, I would. So he followed me in prayer. And he asked Christ in his life. And when he looked up, his whole countenance had changed. No more the steely eyes. No more this rigidness. The tears were coming down his face. And I shared some assurance passages with him. And I said, I want to give you this little Gideon's Bible. And I want you to read it. I want you to read, start with the Gospel of John. And so all of that time, those three hours, the cops are knocking on the door periodically. You all right, Reverend? You all right? Yes, I'm all right. And finally I knocked on the door and they opened the door and they took Mike out. They allowed him to have the little Gideon Bible and I went home. And the next day... Two people, a husband and wife, came in my office. And they identified themselves as Mike's mom and dad. And they said, what in the world did you do to our son? And they saw I was kind of taken back. And they said, oh, no, no, it's good. We went to visit our son this morning. And we have our son back again. He was clean shaven and his hair was cut. And what really impressed us, we couldn't believe it. When he saw us, he held up his hand because he was kneeling in the middle of the jail cell. And he had this little Bible in his hand. <coughs> and he was sharing with a fellow prisoner. And he was reading God's Word to him. I still become emotional as I think about that. And they said, we don't know what you did to our son or what you shared with our son, but whatever it is, we need it too. So I led mom and dad to the Lord. And that's been over 35 years ago. But following that incident, uh, Mike was convicted. 
I found out that he said, Pastor Ron, I don't remember anything. He had tortured a little two-year-old boy who was deaf, who was the son of his girlfriend, tortured, to death with, tortured him to death with cigarette butts. And he did not remember one thing because he was high on drugs and alcohol. But he was sent up for seven years in the state penitentiary. And I went down with his grandparents once a month to visit him. And every time he'd come to visit, he would talk about Jesus. That's all he wanted to talk about. And also found out he was very much involved in the chaplain's program in the prison. Well, I've lost touch with him, but he's in God's hands. But the whole point of that long story is, my friends, to affirm to you again the power of God's Word, that it becomes a pass key to a liberated life, not only to Mike, but to each one of us, to those that we've been praying for, whether they're loved ones, to our neighbor, for our country, as we pray for revival. And again, treasure God's Word in your heart above all else. As Romans 12, the first part of verse 2 says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Treasure God's Word above all else in your heart. Let it be your point of reference, your guide, and your final authority in truth and life. I hold, I happen to hold my ordination credentials in the Evangelical Free Church of America. And their very first article of faith says that the Word of God in its original writings is without error. But they also make a big point to say that it's our final authority in all faith and practice. Very first article. The forefathers of the free church, when they came to this country, they had this mantra, where is it written? Where is it written? Where is it written? It says, my former father-in-law exhorted, make God's Word your life, your bread, your breath. According to Psalm 119, it is a transforming influence in your life. I call your attention to your church programs. On the back of your notes, there's a study guide that I've given you. And I prepared this study guide many years ago. And it was primarily, it's kind of an application Bible study guide. And it's mainly for people who live a fast life. You know, they don't have time to spend hours and hours reading God's Word. But in order to find, look for something as you read God's Word, it asks certain practical questions. Is there any sin I should avoid? What's my favorite verse? What should I pray for? And so what does it say about Jesus? And so on and so forth. And anything I produce, when you hear copyright, it means copyright out of it, unless it's published. And that's not published. So make yourself copies and keep it in your Bible and use it as you read God's Word. It's kind of an application type of Bible study. And I want to also suggest to you something else. Please, I exhort you, memorize God's Word. You say it's hard to memorize? It is for me too. I have to really work at it. 
I recommend that you buy one of these spiral index cards. It looks like this. Very cheap. And as you go and you find verses in whatever translation you want to memorize in, you write the passage on one side, and on the other side you write the verse. And then you flip through as you memorize the verses and go through. This happens to be mine. I have several of them in there. But I have to constantly flip through them every week in order to keep them in my heart. That way, my friends, you'll treasure God's Word in your heart. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Precious Father, the psalmist in 176 verses talked about the importance of God's Word in his own heart. And how important it is to treasure it in our hearts above all else. We live in a culture, Lord, that is very antagonistic to that kind of thing. And they're trying to get us, Lord, to go according to our feelings, go according to our logic, keep it to ourselves. But God... May we not fail to make your word a part of us and boldly stand upon it in this antagonistic culture in which we live in that abides by a whole different philosophy. Thank you for giving us your word. May we not be found needy like the children of Israel were, where every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Bless you, Father, for giving us your word. We go forth now, standing upon the word, the precious word of Jesus. Amen.